Welcome, everyone. You're listening to the very first episode of Privacy Lab Podcast, where we try to put privacy front and center in conversations about technology. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, and we're recording from the Yale University campus in beautiful New Haven. Privacy Lab is an initiative of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School, and we're ramping up for a very active semester of events. Our first Privacy Lab workshop will be Friday, September 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern, where we'll be exploring the deep, dark, anonymous web. I know that sounds spooky, but we're going to try to demystify the topic, and uh, we're going to get you using web anonymity and the Tor network. Our guest today is Corey Doctorow, an activist, author, and journalist. Corey is co-editor at boingboing.net, is well known as an organizer at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, and is the author of novels such as Walk Away, Little Brother, and Homeland, as well as nonfiction books such as Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, Laws for the Internet Age. Hi, Corey. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me on, Sean. It's nice to chat with you. Yeah, this will be fun. Okay, so we start the ideas lunches we have at Yale ISP with a silly question. Um, so I want to start off actually with a not-so-silly question. Um, have we lost the battle for net neutrality completely? That's a question that comes up a lot, and I think that it mistakes the nature of the battle. So it's tempting to think that net neutrality is a fight that you win or lose, and I think that it's more like a fight that you engage forever. Um, yeah. You know, you might liken it to the question about competition in telecoms overall. So like in 1982, the um, uh, FTC broke up the, the big carriers and, and turned AT&T into the baby bells. And the executives who believed that AT&T should be a giant, manip- uh, giant monopoly and the shareholders they represented, they didn't all like take up Zen Buddhism and join an ashram, right, right? right? They like hung around in the baby bells like Voldemort stuck to the back of some <laughs> poor bastard's head. And they kind of slowly accumulated power until we got to the stage that we're in now with the, you know, the Time Warner mergers yep. and, and Comcast being an element of Universal and there effectively being less telecoms competition than there was before. And that's because it's it's a battle that you commit yourself to in the form of eternal vigilance, not a fight that you comprehensively win and walk away from. Right. So, you know, for me, the useful question isn't, did we just lose net neutrality? The question is, what's our next move in this ongoing battle, having just lost one of the rounds? Right. And uh, I think that, you know, uh, although I would never wish for a loss, because there's going to be real harms from, from our loss in net neutrality, there's going to be businesses that go under, there's going to be speech that's suppressed, there's going to be a kind of monopolization of, of our discourse, that the only thing worse than all that happening is squandering the opportunity that that represents in the form of public outrage that we can muster to make net neutrality into an election issue in 2018 and 2020 and actually um, score some really significant victories and mentally scar some political strategists yeah. who, after <laughs> all, you know, only care about net neutra- about about destroying net neutrality in order to curry a little bit of uh, campaign donation favor here and there. You know, the politicians aren't like they're not ideologically committed to telecoms monopolies. They're just ideologically committed to corruption and titanic amounts of money, money from yeah. telecoms. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, monopolists 
And, you know, money is nice, but you can't get elected without votes. And if taking that money makes you unelectable, then I think that we will win a really significant victory. So let us, you know, let us at least salvage something from this terrible loss in the form of uh, an electoral victory that will create trauma for political strategists who will then for a generation, whenever anyone moots uh, screwing over internet policy as a convenient way to get some campaign donations, will say that's a, a terrible losing strategy. And if you do it, you're going to have to find a new political strategist to represent you because I don't back losers. Sure, sure. So as far as privacy is uh, concerned, this is kind of a tough thing to talk about. Um, you know, I, I talked to some high school teachers who have high schoolers who are like, yeah, we need net neutrality. And they got really behind it, but didn't quite understand you know, what they were talking about, which is, you know, great marketing, great branding, but uh, it means the concepts, you know, as this fight goes on, as you said, you know, it's going to be harder and harder for them to kind of keep this up if it changes names or, or whatever the, the strategy becomes. Um, so from a privacy standpoint, um, that generation is going to be dealing with a lot of this fallout, and they're going to be dealing with it especially through, you know, sort of the appification of their mobile devices. Can, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, whatever loss we had or didn't have in the last year, how that might change the way that people take in media, take in their Internet um, experience on their mobile phones? Um, yeah, but can we go back one step and, and talk about whether whether and how it's a problem that um, people know that they like net neutrality, but they don't understand its, its nuances? Sure, sure. Because I, I don't want to let that pass without comment. I actually think that that's not entirely right. So we live in an extremely technical world right. in which the, the daily functioning of the world, the, the systems you interact with to stay alive and be a part of the world around you, um, in order to understand their ins and outs requires an enormous amount of technical expertise, right. and in the aggregate, more expertise than any person could ever accumulate in their life. And so it, it ends up, you end up having to delegate your trust. We use heuristics, right? So like my organic chemistry days in high school are a long time behind me. Sure. <laughs> so like when someone tells me that such and such is like a dangerous uh, carcinogen because it's a dioxin or you know, because it's a byproduct of, of um, some uh, pulp and paper process or what have you, I look at kind of the heuristics around whether I should trust them, uh, and I use the little bit of technical knowledge that I have in the field to, as a sanity check to see whether or not they're, they're someone who seems trustworthy. And I combine those two to figure out whether or not that's an issue I should be exercised right. about. Because although I'm not, like, qualified to speak in detail about... Um, uh, organic chemistry, I also don't want to die of cancer, yeah. right? And so, you know, it's not like it's unimportant. It's just a thing that I can't be uh, an expert on. And so uh, that means that I have to delegate. And so what, what, we're, what we get here is uh, not um, people who are blindly following the herd, sure. but rather people who've arrived at a heuristic that I think we should be pretty happy about, which is that when people who are generally in the right about a bunch of issues that they are able to understand through their direct experience and online, because that's one thing we all have now is direct experience online, tell them that net neutrality is a thing that they should be exercised about and give them a broad sketch of what's at stake, yeah. and they take them at their word. That's good. And so, you know, let's go back to apps and privacy and, and all the other problems that we're having. Um, you know, I, I think that, that it's been pretty well documented by the likes of Dana Boyd and other anthropologists who study young people, especially young people who are marginalized or, or at risk, 
they do really understand privacy in a kind of broad sense that there are people who can harm you if they know your business. And they actually understand that privacy isn't nobody knows your business. Privacy is you choose who knows your business. Right. And they have a really keen appreciation of that. What they're just not very good at is threat modeling. They just don't know who they should be private from. They overestimate the risk from their peers and underestimate the risk from like future employers, authority figures, cops, you know, uh, future authoritarian governments, you know, uh, uh, ma- manipulators uh, on the lines of um, Cambridge Analytica and so on. They, they just they just don't know who they should be worried about, but they sure know that this is worrisome. Yeah, right? they're they're like a hundred percent on board there. So we need we do need to get them exercised about some emerging threats, things that are not well understood. And apps are, are a good example that um, what's happened is that as firms have figured out how to monopolize uh, network connections and and to become. Uh, the kind of arbiters of interoperability and to block uh, adversarial interoperability where people you don't like nevertheless figure out how to plug into your systems, which has been key to the entire history of the internet and competition, um, that that this is a thing they really got to actually uh, pay attention to. You know, that's an issue we need to bring to their attention because they don't really understand the, the nuance there. And they, they, you know, why should they? Right. It's a it's a right. it's a tough nuance to get your head around. And, um, you know, it's salience is uh, although it, it's salience is high. It's also a long way off. It's not yep. a thing that, you know, is going to bite them in the ass tomorrow. It's 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 more like climate change. You know, it's a it's more like any other public health problem sure. where uh, action and consequence are separated by so much time and space that people really struggle to understand you know, what, what, why they should be exercised now about something that's going to happen in 20 years. Sure. So, I mean, I think, uh, and I'm glad you underscore the point, it's education and outreach is, is the hard part, right? And, you know, that's something we, we try to do in workshops and so on. Um, I didn't mean to suggest, you know, that, that people don't quite know, but it's just, it's kind of like climate change, right? It's one of these things where it's like, well, we know the boulder is, is going to roll over us and, and, you know, be a huge problem, but it's just something that's hard to kind of comprehend. Um, and since you are, you know, a writer and sci-fi writer, um, one of the things that sort of is pointed out to me is that uh, sci-fi writers have been warning us about this sort of thing for a long time. Um, maybe not necessarily, you know, uh, in the context of networks always, but at least, you know, surveillance and personal liberty and the ability to publish and, and communicate and how those things can kind of be limited by technology. So um, I guess I just want to kind of get your perspective Um you know, what do you think the role of sci-fi writers can be in this area? Obviously, you've done a lot of this in, in your own writing. Um, but do you think that's that's the place for advocacy? Do you think there should be more? Do you think there should be, you know, sci-fi writers should also do the kind of activism work that you do or, or what? Yeah. So let's start by decomposing the education question into into its component parts, because it's not a monolithic task and it actually has distinct phases that have different relationships to communication strategies. So I think that um, at the start of these public health crises, these these, um, you know, attenuated cause and effect crises, the the job of the activist is to just convince people that a crisis is unfolding right that that cigarettes give you cancer that the climate is changing that privacy matters right but there the thing about these problems is if they're really problems that on that they solve that problem on their own in the worst way possible by becoming such an undeniable crisis that eventually 
people just convince themselves, right? Like it would be lovely if we did, if people didn't have to learn the hard way, not least because, you know, while we're waiting for people to discover that climate change is a problem, we may build up so much carbon debt that right. uh, it's too late to do something about it. Likewise, you know, while we're waiting for people to build, to understand that privacy is an issue, we may build up so much PII debt, you know, so many silos full of so much potentially compromising information that is inevitably gonna leak that that it, it, it might be too late. So I call this the race between peak indifference and the point of no return. And, you know, once peak indifference arrives, right, once people start self-radicalizing yeah. as believers in the, in the crisis, then you have a new job, which is to convince them that there's something that they can do about it and that they shouldn't be nihilists. Right. And so science fiction writers and other kinds of communicators, those, they have to not only be good at convincing people that there is a problem or convincing them that it's not too late to do something about it, they have to be good at timing their moment. And um, I certainly have tried to do that in science fiction. And, and let me, as a sidebar, note that I think that science fiction writers aren't uh, fortune tellers. Sure. Uh, that w we can't predict the future, that... Um, you know, the claims of science fiction writers to predicting the future should really be scrutinized <laughs> yeah. with enormous uh, uh, with enormous skepticism. You know, yeah, if you make a lot of predictions, it would be alarming if none of them came true. Right. But, you know, your success rate should be not evaluated on how many successful predictions you made, but what fraction of all the predictions sure. they constitute. You know, are you a Texas marksman who's fired a, a, a shotgun into the side of a barn and then drawn a target around the place where the pellets went in? So... You know, I, I think that, like, not only is are we not good at predicting the future, but I think that predicting the future, if the future were predictable, that that would mean in a, an important way that it was not amenable to human intervention. Right. Right. If the future is coming on rails, why get out of bed? Sure. You know, because it's <laughs> going to happen no matter what we do. Right. And there's a really good science fictional exercise in, in exactly how this works from a colleague of mine who I'm actually working on a, another information policy uh, uh, academic project with uh, named Ada Palmer, who's a tenured Renaissance historian at the University of Chicago, and is also a brilliant uh, new science fiction writer. And every year, Ada does this uh, now infamous exercise with her undergrads, where they reenact the election of the Medici's Pope oh, wow. through a weeks-long live-action role-playing game. And they're all assigned roles, and they spend weeks, you know, horse trading and backstabbing, and you know, furiously sending each other text messages and. And um, in the end, every year, there are a couple of people who are always in the running for the for the final choice of who's going to be Pope. Yeah. Uh, and those people are people who are like subject to the great forces of history. They are inevitable. Right. But then there's always a couple of people who are wild cards. And those are the people who are the result of human action on the forces of history. Right. They, they represent the kind of space there is to play yeah. within human history and its great forces. And, um, you know, the, 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 the double lesson here is that on the one hand, there's always room for human action. And so humans change the future. And the, and on the other hand, that, um, the way that we get these great historic forces that foreordain our outcomes is by humans taking action in an earlier round of the game. Yeah. Right. There's still human action. So it's a, it's a good way to square this important question that we have about social change, which is, is it caused by forces or people? It's caused by people creating forces. 
And even if we don't win this round, maybe we can create a force that will help us win a round to come. You know, an, uh, uh, an example that I'm sad about is uh, the Republicans who uh, lost big in the Obama era, then took over the, um, the census and gerrymandered 10 years of state level victories. I'm not very happy about, about how that happened, but I think that it's a good example of how you can have people who, even though they lose a round, um, are able to tee up victories in subsequent rounds of, of this kind of big social game we're playing. So science fiction, I think, can give us a very versatile toolkit for these kinds of struggles. For one thing, it can give you a kind of emotional fly-through of what a technological change looks like uh, that is otherwise uh, difficult to kind of get your head around and that reduces the debate to a series of, of um, very dry abstractions. You know, if you can imagine it's like 1948 and we're arguing about uh, whether the war dividend should be used to uh, to like put cameras in everyone's uh, bedrooms and on every corner. Now that we have all this groovy new technology we right. developed, to, you know, as part of the war effort, and then we could be like men like gods. It'd be like the Sermon on the Mount. You know, our eye would be on the sparrow, <laughs> and we would see all of the all of the bad guys as they did bad things, and we would we would be able to interdict them. And and you know that wouldn't that be great? And like 1949 comes along. And Orwell gives us this wonderful book and this wonderful word, which is um, Orwellian, right? And so rather than arguing in abstractions about why that's risky, you could instead import a kind of emotional story yeah. along with the technical story and the, the other policy parts of it. And you're encapsulating. Because you know, things on paper. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Things on paper can seem very dry, right? Like. Um, you know, criminally prosecuting families who cross the border on improperly sounds very dry. Uh, putting babies in cages and depriving them of ever meeting their parents again brings some of the emotional freight home. And I don't think that's an unfair advantage that you give yourself. Right. I think that the reason we care about these abstractions is because of their concrete impact on us and our psyches and our moral sense and so on. And so this is a thing that fiction does really well, is it gives us these the, this ability to feel a, 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 the moral dimension and the emotional dimension of, uh, of an issue for better and for worse, right. right? I think that, you know, you have people who I virulently disagree with, like Ayn Rand, who were able to... Uh, tap into emotional uh, senses of her readers to convince them that human beings can be um, can be kind of sorted into the genetically superior and the people who should uh, shut up and listen to their betters, a kind of uh, uh, you know uh, cash money version of of the republic. Uh, and uh, and and you know that has wrought enormous harm. And it's wrought enormous harm by tapping into people's psyche right. uh, in, in, in an irrational way, despite the fact that they call themselves rationalists, that really, you know, the story of Rourke is a, is a story that plays on your emotions, not a story that appeals to your reason. Sure, sure. So um, I think that's very interesting uh, that you're putting it in such grand, uh, awesome terms. Um, that kind of uh, gets back to some of the things um, I worry about, and I guess what I was getting at the heart at was um, it kind of seems like when we lose our privacy, at least um, 
in the ways that are most spoken about right now. So through social media companies like Facebook and through, you know, using Netflix or and, you know, having your viewing habits sort of studied or, um, you know, the mobile ecosystem, right, where we have all of these uh, snippets of code in applications that are spying on you in all sorts of ways, right? Um, it, it sort of seems like um, privacy advocates and, and people who are worried even just about basic security principles are losing the war sort of in bits and pieces because it's not tangible enough, you know, the fallout. Um, so how do we sort of bring those messages up um, and get individuals to listen when it's like, oh, well, no big deal. I need to watch Netflix. I really have to watch this show. So let me um, let me posit here that there is a kind of scalloped growth curve in in awareness of political issues that you have a crisis uh and that that crisis brings a lot of people into the fold and gets them alarmed yeah but stimulus regresses to the mean and so even if the crisis isn't resolved very well you just can't it becomes normal and a lot of the people who are activated by the crisis fall away but the number of people who stay engaged is larger than it was before the crisis started. You know, if you just think of like human sentiments being arrayed on a bell curve, say, the you know two or three sigmas out are people who will be so traumatized or activated by the crisis that even that that they resist the stimulus regressing to the mean. Yeah. You know, we are all variable in our response to stimulus. That's why you know most of us played Farmville for a couple of days and gave it up, and then some people just never stopped. And most of us play a slot machine for a couple hours and enter it. First kind of excited by this weird experience and then after a couple hours leave it off but then some people go out and buy adult diapers and mortgage their house and raid their <laughs> right. kids you know like we we have a we have a, a, a we have a spectrum of responses to stimulus and so yeah. the crisis the crises are inevitable because it's a real problem so real problems create crises each crisis generates more people who are activated in the first uh, blush of the crisis and as each crisis fades the number of people who remain engaged stays uh, higher than it was at the at the former baseline. So the, the baseline keeps getting higher. And there's some threshold of engagement that is high enough that the crisis, uh, that, that the, even after the crisis fades, action is still in the cards. Um, so uh, you, you can see that kind of playing out in questions of racial justice sure. and police shootings, you know, in, in lots of different ways. And I think privacy is, is likely to be uh, likely to be, uh, um, you know, an, another one of these models. And we can see it playing out, you know, whether that's Cambridge Analytica or, um, you know, the major identity theft uh, uh, scandals. Um, you know, one of the things about about privacy breaches that is very poorly understood and particularly not well captured in our regulatory regime regime and statutory damages and breaches is that re-identification attacks, yeah. which are effectively what what we worry about with privacy is that, you know, you get some information, you merge it with other information and that gives you uh, leverage to do something else. That re-identification attacks are cumulative and that each new breach increases the likelihood that an old breach or even an old legitimate release will be weaponized to attack larger and larger segments of the population who are themselves targets of opportunity. So not people who have any special trait that would make them interesting to a thief or a snoop, but rather just people who, uh, when you merge one data set with another, fall out of that data set as someone vulnerable to something. 
And um, what that means, unfortunately, is that it's a kind of bioaccumulation process in the same way that like every time strontium-90 is vented around Hershey, Pennsylvania by Three Mile Island, the, the long-term health risks get higher, you know, or every time you get a CT scan or a chest x-ray, your long-term health risks go higher every time there's a breach the risks to all the people involved get higher. So we are going to have so many privacy crises. And, you know, we're just like, we're just scraping the surface. Like, you know, one of the things that we know is that when you have enough PII, you can uh, get a duplicate deed for someone's house. (laughs) And that when you have that much PII, you can probably also get a pretty good idea of when that person is not in their house. And so, you know, like three years ago, there were a, there was a rash of New York and London house sales where people were getting duplicate deeds to houses of people who were out of town or who rented the houses out as um, income property and just selling it for cash sure. and then leaving the country, right? Just disappearing, right? right? So, you know, we're going to hit a point where each breach will result in something like 1% of the people implicated by the breach losing their houses. So, so, <laughs> right? And so there will be big crises. Right, right, right. And so, so one of the things, I guess... Um, just playing devil's advocate. I'm not saying I disagree with you. I think, you know, when Snowden happened, we got more people, you know, worrying about these issues. Uh, obviously, Cambridge Analytica this year was, was a big deal. Um, and, and each time, I think we, we probably do get bigger and bigger, you know, groups of people caring about these issues in a very fundamental way that they may actually take action. Um, but just playing devil's advocate, you know, the example you use, uh, that kind of example can work the other way, right? Um, somebody can say who's like huge into analytics and and huge into concepts like social credit systems can say, well, we just need to have a better way to decide who gets to buy a house and how they're able to make that purchase. Maybe we just need a bigger data set to represent that individual. You know, um, and so I worry about those kinds of things creeping in as privacy becomes more of an issue. You know, I mean, there are plenty of entrepreneurs working on that kind of thing. So I think that those arguments are are in the main not good faith arguments, or or if they are good faith arguments, they're good faith arguments in the Upton Sinclair sense of it being impossible to explain to, some, to something to a man whose paycheck depends on them not understanding it. So yeah, I mean, in the same way that there are people who will observe that, um, you know, uh, the the more uh, we police people, uh, the more our jails get full, and uh, you know, the more. Um, uh, zero tolerance we have and long sentences we have, the more people end up in prison and then the more people who are trapped in a kind of spiral who end up back in prison if they ever get out and so on. And then we'll say, well, we just need longer sentences, more right. cops and more crimes. Um, I, I think that maybe some of those people are sincere, but they are sincere because they're self-deluded, because they, they have a, they have a self-interest in, in believing that and sincerely believing something that's wrong. But the manifest uh, incorrectness of their argument becomes more visible uh, with each with each passing year. And so uh, I, I think that, um, you know, ins- insincere opportunism is uh, is is a fact of life and insincere opportunists will 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 always be there. And if our countermeasure can be defeated by insincere opportunism, we're dead before we start. Right. Because, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of there's never we're never going to run out of that. Um, and nor, you know, self-delusion. And so, you know, I think that one of the things we're kind of tap dancing around here uh, is the a question of, um, 
of monopolism and its impact on policy outcomes. Because it's one thing for a petty grifter to insincerely believe that uh, you should just trust them more, sure. you know, you should give them more money and their Ponzi scheme won't collapse. It's another thing for someone who holds the ears of the legislature or the executive branch uh, and who who the politicians depend on for their political survivor survival to have those beliefs. And you know, one of the reasons we have bad policy, regardless of the policy, tobacco, asbestos, climate, privacy, or what have you, is that the beneficiaries of those bad policies are able to concentrate their gains and use the surplus capital from their gains to uh, lobby for the continuation and expansion of those policies. And the victims of those policies have diffused losses that are socialized. Sure. And we face a collective action problem in all of us getting together and spending as much money or effort to uh, block the expansion of these bad policies and to reverse them than um, the people who benefit from them are able to muster to expand them. Sure. And and, and I guess um, one of the examples that sort of uh, stands out to me that's tangible at the moment, which is not necessarily policy-based, but I'm worried may get to that level, um, I'm sure many other people are as well, um, Everybody seems to be putting a camera on their front door these days, right? Um, mm -hmm. And everybody's got a dash cam, and, and there's sort of this concept of, you know, surveillance where, you know, they're surveilling you, you're surveilling them, and if you end up getting in a car accident, you know, one of you can prove who was right, and so on and so forth. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I think when state power comes into it, you know, uh, and policies are such that, that encourage these systems to be networked together. Um, we're seeing it in, in places, large cities, or, you know, in Russia, for example, it's very notable, they're, they're having private surveillance cameras um, becoming part of the city networks, right? And um, we're not that far from something like that here. So I guess the question would be, you know, uh, does it really necessarily take, though, a, a huge, uh, intense amount of lobbying for something like that to be given up so easily? I mean, we're talking about video surveillance of a huge swath of the population. Or can it also happen in these ways where a lot of consumers just pick up devices and sort of come to a consensus uh, culturally that they, you know, they're fearful of something, so they have to, uh, they have to combat against it with, with surveillance? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're back to public health problems because the the small personal advantage that accrues to you through putting a camera on your door, which is pretty speculative, uh, is uh, has to be weighed against a longer term potential risk to you of kind of living in a police state. And, you know, as with other public health problems, the the long gap between cause and effect and the fact that there are people who privatize their gains from this and who can socialize the losses from it means that it's hard for us to take action on them. That, that I think that analysis is important. It, it, um, it doesn't solve the problem, right. but I think it at least locates the problem in the right place. Um, you know, we're, we're often technological instrumentalists, right? You know, uh, the, the, and there's lots of, of, of good reasons for that, including like good economic reasons that, you know, we, we discount long-term consequences against short-term gains because 
the world's a big place. Who knows? Right. Tomorrow's another day. Yeah. Two weeks is a long time in politics, right? Like, who knows? Maybe you'll be dead before you get cancer, right? Uh, you know, maybe you get hit by a bus and then you'll have enjoyed all those cigarettes, right? So, like, wh why quit now, right? Yeah. Um, and it's not a completely irrational thing to do, uh, but uh, getting the equilibrium right is hard. And because you don't get to iterate on it, it's really hard uh, because, you know, you, you once you discover that you made the wrong uh, discount, it's too late. You've, you've already applied the discount and you're, you're going to have to own the thing that you bought at that discount. Um, so, uh, you know, I watched this happen, this, this surveillance thing happen, uh, in the UK. Yeah. Uh, when I lived there and I lived there for 13 years and, um, it was in this period of rampant inequality and rising uh, collapse of social cohesion as the result of an official policy that had for decades argued that um, selfishness was the greatest of all virtues sure. and that uh, you know that that uh, society lived or died based on your ability to personally uh, take care of all your own needs and these two, and and it, and and also that you couldn't trust your neighbors, you know, which is a, a corollary or corollary, as they say in England, yep. of this, and um, you know, it, it was it was uh, it was not an a, an a, it was not a phenomenon that took place in a vacuum, and while maybe we could have staved off the cameras, maybe with a rule, say, um, the wider problem that gave rise to the cameras has festered. And continues to fester in large part, I think, due to um, inequality and, and austerity. And we're seeing a political backlash, right? We're seeing people who are, on the one hand, concerned about privacy, and on the other hand, concerned about inequality, and who have a different theory of human action, who, who are rejecting kind of neo-Thatcherism. And we'll see whether that gets anywhere, and we'll see whether it's too little, too late. But you know, th this is where the ball lies, and we play the ball where it lies, not where we wish it had landed. So sure. this is what we have to work with. And it seems like appealing to people's sense of social solidarity is actually a really good way to get them to knock it off with the surveillance crap. Yeah, I, I think that's generally true. Um, but I mean, there's a lot that remains to be seen. Um, at any rate, um, I know in Walk Away, you're sort of, which is your, your most recent novel, right? Um, and you um, explore sort of the idea of, I don't know, forking your circumstances a little bit um, and kind of stepping out and, and, and making your own way and building a, a, a new culture and so on. And, um, you know, obviously to people like me who are big into free and open source software, I see sort of the parallels between that and what I see happen a little bit in software development. Um, so I, I guess the question would be, you know, what kind of ideas are you exploring there? Where do you think the potential is? And then just to bring it back, um, do you think in the free and open source software world that we're starting to reach sort of a parallel culture that, that um, you know, the Free Software Foundation, when they put on their Libra Planet every year, which I, I know you spoke at, do you look around and say that the individuals here are the ones building sort of these parallel, um, separate, um, making their own way kind of cultures or... Um, so I think that, that, uh, free software and, op uh, and open source, which are different things. And I want to get to that in a second, yep. the free software and open source are really good examples of what happens when you lower transaction costs and you make it cheaper to form groups. Um, 
that uh, you know that this is a, a really important and difficult to to notice in the moment shift in human action, because the thing that determines the outcome of of human action is how much energy you have to put into um, getting organized with other people and how much time that leaves left over for you to do the thing you've organized for. You know, this is back to corruption. This is why it's hard to resist corruption right. because it takes so much energy just to find everyone else who's buying water filters that um, you don't have a lot of energy left over to lobby the government to stop the polluter who means that whose whose actions have required you all to buy water filters. And so free and open source software is letting us do things that are of incredible ambition with very little institutional overhead. So like now we build encyclopedias and operating systems with the kind of institutional overheads we used to bring to really ambitious bake sales. Right. <laughs> and uh, that's a new thing on the world in the world. It's super exciting. And one of the things I wanted to explore in Walkaway is what it means to have such low institutional costs. Because one of the things we get out of free and open source software, one of the reasons that we're willing to form these groups that are so cheap uh, is that you can join a project and not have to know that it has all of its democratic fundamentals nailed and that no one is going to run away with the project and do terrible, stupid things with it. Because the limit on how terrible and stupid someone can be with your project is your willingness to gather up some of the people involved and fork the project into something new. So it's that's like forking is is part of why it's so cheap to collaborate, because it makes the cost of of um, bad collaboration choices much lower. Right. And so it's it's easier to take risks and iterate. So that's that's um you know, that's the thing I really wanted to explore in Walkaway, and I wanted to see what it would look like if we built other things that were on the same order of magnitude of complexity as an encyclopedia or an operating system in the same way. So, you know, luxury resorts or space programs, what do they look like right. when they're organized on those principles? And that's 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 kind of the one of the underlying technical stories in Walkaway. But I also want to touch on the difference between free software and open source software, because it's got a really important lesson for privacy and other fights. So when the free software movement began, it was grounded in an, in an ethical story about the importance of freedom unto itself, right? Yep. We, we want freedom because freedom is important. And the freer you are, the better the world is. And the open source movement came along and it grounded its pitch for use for using the tools of free software in a purely instrumental pitch it said that um, making software and exposing the code to universal scrutiny and allowing anyone who has a need to improve the code to just add their improvements without a, without having to work for you makes better code for less money right so they stressed this instrumental benefit and um, Benjamin Mako Hill is one of the Free Software Foundation board members, spoke about this this year in his keynote at LibrePlanet. And he said that, um, you know, the early free software advocates thought that they were taking vows of poverty, right? They thought that no yeah. one would ever pay them to make software that emphasized freedom, but that the open source movement created a, a weird alliance in the form of uh, people who were willing to pay a lot of money for free software because they valued code quality and that the, the free software movement became one that where, where you could earn a really good living by working on freedom, but that uh, there was a cost to this compromise, to this, to this alliance, which is that um, 
when you are making choices about software free freedom that relate to code quality and not to freedom per se, the freedom can be eroded without the code quality losing out. So, you know, another like a kind of um, non-code example of this might be, uh, you know, Singapore's free markets versus actual freedom, sure. right? Where Singapore Singapore figured out how to get free markets without without um, giving people actual freedom, and so now you know you can be caned and executed in Singapore for relatively minor infractions. Sure. Um, and so you know what happened with open source is that um, we got open source code being integrated into increasingly. Uh, lockdown systems and services like you know Facebook runs all on open source right. um, but you don't get any software freedom from Facebook you don't get to take uh, Facebook and write your own client for Facebook and uh, log into Facebook and fork Facebook with your own client and you know uh, uh, accrue to yourself the freedoms that Facebook is monetizing um, at your expense and um, and so what we found is that all the software freedom has ended up in the hands of giant corporations and users of software get no software freedom from free software anymore. Right. And that I think is really important when we talk about the low cost of forming groups, because, because, you know, the advantage of that is that we, uh, is that, you know, we can collaborate on, on goals that we're only partially aligned on, but that the risk, especially under conditions of mass inequality is that the incredible resources that the winners of earlier rounds of the game, the, the super rich and the powerful can bring to it means that they can um, swamp you and swamp your ability to maintain the, um, the uh, uh, advantage that you're getting from this. And they can, they can hoard all of the advantages. They can sweep the board and take all the chips home. Yeah. So thank you for explaining that so elegantly. I'm going to uh, take some of that for the next time I have to talk about free software. <laughs> so yeah, um, but but I yeah I I mean me too. I, it was all Mako. Yeah, he's right. he's smart. Yeah, and he's done great work uh, early on too. You know, I still point back to the the work he did about Debian and Ubuntu with uh, forking. It's still really important for projects to wrap their head around now. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess, uh, you know, just as a final question here, because we only have a little bit more time, um, you know, do you still kind of see, and this is what I was getting at before, sort of tangentially, um, do you still kind of see at these conferences you go to where you see hackers, where you see people who are doing amazing things in the world, do you still see the kind of um, hope that was, I think, you know, implicit sort of earlier earlier in the game, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, um, that sort of optimism and idealism, or do you kind of worry that there's, um, you know, there are other forces at play that a lot of these people are going to end up in industry um, doing some of the very things that they're sort of rallying against now? Again, I think that's a question with two different answers. So, um, you know, on the one hand, I think that it's important to note that the early years were not characterized so much by optimism, but by uh, a sense of both potential and risk, right? right. The, the motto, can I, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, go for it. So, you know, uh, Michael Weinberg, when he was at uh, Public Knowledge, wrote a paper about, um, about 3D printing and IP rights where it, that was called, this will all be so great if we don't fuck it up. Right. And I think that that's like, that's not an optimistic statement per se, right? right. right? That is like, that is a mixed bag yeah, 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 yeah. in terms of its, its, its view here. Right. And so, um, 
that's where I think people were coming from back then. I don't think that's weakened at all. Yeah. I think people are even more concerned about what will happen if we fuck it up. Uh, and I think people are even more um, uh, excited about about what the potential, um, not if not the potential benefits of it are, then at least the potential consequences, right? The power of networks. You know, I had a, a, a weird experience a couple of weeks ago, really one that I've been I've been processing ever since. I have a, a, a good friend who is an activist in a very traditional stripe, right? Yeah. Civil, civil rights activist. And 10 years ago uh, this month, uh, they and I had a dinner that left me feeling really um, upset with them and really uh, belittled for literally a whole decade where they said, look, you know, you just got to get serious about this stuff. If you care about what happens in the real world, you got to stop screwing around with networks, right? Computers aren't where the action is. Copyright isn't where the action is. The action is in inequality and racial bias and all those other things. And I said, yes, 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 absolutely. And the place where we're going to end up fighting those fights is on the internet. And they were like, you, you just like hanging around on the internet and you found a reason to do it. So I ran into that person a couple of weeks ago and I hadn't seen them in years. And they walked up to me spontaneously and said, the work you're doing, it's really important. It's God's work. And uh, I don't, I, I have a feeling they didn't even remember that right, conversation. Course, right. I'm sure it made more of an impression on me than it did on them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we are reaching a kind of peak indifference moment there. People are, people are coming to understand that this is a, this is an issue they can't afford to ignore, that it's not a distraction, that it's the main event, um, that, you know, climate's more important than the internet, but the way that we do something about the climate is through the internet. Uh, and, um, and so that's the first part of your question, right? Like, are people, have, are people giving up? The second part of the question is who's in the industry? Right. So I think that the, the first round of people who are in the tech industry to a first approximation were people who were there because they were really excited about computers and the potential that they represented. So they had a, a kind of intrinsic love of the field. And it gave them... Uh, maybe a sense of uh, patrician duty to the field. Sure. You know, I want to make sure that it all happens the right way. And the the current round certainly has some of those people who who feel that same passion and therefore that same duty. But it also includes a large number of people who went into the field because it's lucrative. Right. And they just have a they have a completely different set of incentives. And so long as the field remains lucrative, all other questions are beside the sidelines. Right. And, and, you know, it's, I don't want to like call them opportunists, right? I just want to say that like, they're just not true believers. They're there. They would be, uh, you know, in another era, they would be people who were like, I don't know, panning for gold or, you know, getting involved in plastics. Like they said in that, in that old Dustin Hoffman movie, you know, they, they, they're just there cause they're like, or you like see this with crypto, cryptocurrencies, right? You see the big rush. Yeah, people, sure. Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that is characteristic and, and, you know, the experience you relate, um, you know, I, I think you need to meet people where they're at. You know, there's extremely important issues in the world. But now that networks are intermediating everything, we have software in the middle of everything. Um, you know, I, I do think there are more individuals who are aware that how important the Internet and technology and so on can be. So. Um, well, and you know, to get back to your first question about students and whether they understand the technical ins and outs. Um, 
people meet you halfway right like the the thing about these issues is that uh, the the scalloped growth also takes place in understanding of their nuance yeah right like uh, we just used to say global warming right and now we talk about co2 and now we're talking about uh, all all uh you know carbon all, all uh, climate related gases including methane and you know the the level of detail that you can discuss these issues in, and thus the quality of the debate that you can have that includes a very broad section of the population, which is necessary for it to have both democratic legitimacy and a chance of, of you know, building the kind of mass movement Actually that's going to need to do something right. about it, just goes up, right? It just goes up uh, over and over again, and will only go up over and over again. Like, I, I keep thinking about uh, crypto tools, uh, the other kind of crypto, yeah. the real crypto, cri privacy crypto, and um, technical expertise and usability. So there's a story that says, like, crypto is hard, and it will always be hard. Uh, you know, don't even bother trying to make PGP easier. And I'm reminded of the early years of desktop publishing, where... Um, it, you know, the first round of desktop publishing tools were really hard to use yeah, yeah. Uh, because they assumed that you're already a typographer. So I had, uh, we had Ready, Set, Go by Letraset on our on our old Macs that I learned to use. I taught myself to use by reading their manuals. And Ready, Set, Go came with a 900-page manual, Jeez. the first 600 pages of which were, here's how typesetting works, right? Uh, like, here's what the word font means. Right. Right. Uh, these were these were concepts that were not in public currency. Now, a couple of things happen. The first is that we realized that there was a lot of stuff that you could do with typesetting without having to know anything about typesetting, that about 95 percent of what we thought of as typesetting could be done without any particular knowledge. Uh, now, the 5% that remained was intractable, right? It's the difference between great type and, and, and you know, just people who get to use fonts. But um, the, there was like, it was a lot more reducible, a lot less irreducible than we thought. Um, now, the other thing that happened, though, is that the general level of expertise and literacy about how type worked went up. Now, the, the reason that Ready, Set, Go assumed you were a typesetter was not that they were dicks. It was that um, everybody who wanted to set type was a typesetter in, you know, 1980-whatever. Uh, there just wasn't anyone who needed to set type right. who wasn't a typesetter. Right. And in the same way, the reason that PGP assumes that you're a, a security expert is that, like, literally the only people who could understand the issues of how private information could be agglomerated, who could sit in the middle and watch your transactions, what the, what the risks were of that, were people who had an enormous degree of technical expertise. Right? That was like a prerequisite for even wanting to use PGP. Now that, that appreciation is more widespread, and we're in the middle of a long and fascinating project to see just how low the bar can be. Right. You know, so Signal and so on are, are good examples of this. And at the same time, the people who uh, are potential audiences for this stuff are getting more literate about privacy, right? They understand dual key cryptography. Like I used to have to spend a ton of time explaining to people that um, if uh, that like, no, the NSA does not have secret math that right. makes dual key cryptography stop working, right? Like that, that the, all those movies you've seen in which they just get a smart mathematician or a bigger computer to make the crypto stop working, those movies are bullshit, right? I don't have to explain that very much anymore. Like the FBI did that job for us yeah. with the uh, panic over the San Bernardino yep. shooters. Yep. So on, you know? on that note, Corey, we're going to have to break here, but thank you for underscoring yeah, sure. it with encryption right there at the end because, you know, it's fun to talk about PGP in a positive way. Um, so, yeah. Um, 
That's it for time. Uh, thank you again to Corey Doctorow and our tech, Ryan McAvoy. Uh, I hope the listeners out there will drop us a line on mastodon.social at Privacy Lab or via our Twitter handle at Yale Privacy Lab. Thanks for listening.